Would you rather be George or John? In this podcast land, I feel I'm Ringo. Hey, Rockers. Welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Hinckley. I'm sitting here with the man who is the John to my Ringo, the man, the myth, the legend, Matt Black. Hello, Seth. Did you have a good summer? I did, man. Good. I had a really good summer. How about you? I was a great summer. I was just annoyed we had to spend those two days in summer school. I know, people man. Didn't pay summer to... school is just such a bummer. <laughs> we hope you guys enjoyed those back. those short yeah. those short episodes. We're back to doing the full buffet of rock trivia goodness. Is that trivia what you're goodness, for? exactly. Okay. Before I forget, what are you wearing today? Today, Seth, I'm wearing an ACDC t-shirt, and I believe you'll find out why soon enough. Cool. Well, I am wearing a Beatles t-shirt. I'm taking a page out of your book. I was going to say, where'd you get that? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find that in my closet this morning. (laughs) Taking a page out of your book. You'll see probably a lot later on, but you'll you'll have to wait for a while to to get that reference, but you'll you'll see where that's coming from. I'm fascinated to see where you're going with this one, because I might have something to say about that too because you're you you don't think i'm a beatles guy oh it's not that i don't think you're a beatles guy it's just that i know i am and i got my list is always full of beatles choices and i'm curious to see which one you picked maybe something Ah, i didn't think of okay cool what are we talking about today seth today we are talking about odd and, and i have to do this i have to warn you all because this is audio air quotes air quotes odd instruments in rock songs some of these are instruments some of them might not be and there's some crazy things that have shown up in in rock and roll songs so matt and i have come up with our our top five list of odd instruments that show up in rock songs what's your criteria did you use any hard and fast rules not really but i I stayed away from anything that i considered more a sound effect than an instrument so for example like i remember we were talking about great intros and you had aldo nova's fantasy last year yeah and it has the machine guns and you know there's the machine guns and And the helicopters helicopters you know there's all kinds of sound effects but i i stuck to things that added to the tonality of the song i went for i i kind of did the same thing Although one or two of my picks might not be exactly we'll like see. that. But I went for things that were like singular instruments, but I left out things like entire string sections or orchestras, like uh, Metallica did on their S&M record, uh, the one that they did with the San Francisco Symphony back in, I think it was 1999, with uh, Michael Kamen. Really good record. If you if you like Metallica, listen to that record with the symphony backup. It's actually really, really cool. Yeah, I think it'd be a stretch to say any string arrangement was odd, because it's string arrangements are all over rock and roll so yeah yeah i I left those out and i I went tried to go for singular instruments gotcha when you say singular do you mean unusual or do you mean singular in the sense that there's just one instrument usually it's just one instrument gotcha it might be double tracked i think mine are all mine all mine all fit yeah it it, it might it's it's not a horn section gotcha it's it's one instrument and like i said it might be double tracked it might be edited in it might you know have some splice recording work sure but that's where i left it at all right who's going first i think you should go first to kick off the new year my number five is the bagpipes on acdc's it's a long way to the top let's bring out the sound effects seth oh, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it's actually my number two so i'll let's, i'll rearrange my order you do yours and then i'll add my add my thoughts in. And okay. then i'll go with my number five 
That's why I'm wearing my ACDC shirt. That's why you're wearing your ACDC shirt. Because, I mean, bagpipes and a rock song. I I think, and I might be wrong, this might be the only instance of bagpipes in a rock song. I think there's another. I remember looking up that very question at one point and seeing there are other examples, but this is definitely the most famous, most popular example. Right, where it's forefront in the mix. The co-producer of the track was George Young, who is Angus and Malcolm's older brother, heard that Bon Scott had actually been in a bagpipe band. Well, he was in a bagpipe. And drum, a fife and drum band. A fife and yeah, drum pi- band. Pipe and drum. Pipe and drum pipe band. Pipe and yeah, drum, yeah. yeah. But Bon Scott played the drums <laughs> in that band, not the pipes. But anyway, Bond decides that he's going to go get a set of bagpipes, and evidently he spent a ridiculous amount of money on this while they're recording this, came back, learned how to play them, and ended up putting those on the, on the song. It's a long way to the top. Playing the song live is a real chore because they would have to tune all the other instruments to the drone pipe on the bagpipes. So that's when you when you fill up the bag and you start pressing the air and it's that one note that comes out. You'd have to tune everything else to that. They only played it something like thirty times. Thirty times line. is what I what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Bon Scott's signature song. So Brian Johnson never wanted to play it live. And- probably didn't want to learn how to play the bagpipes also well yeah that too that <laughs> I, too. I think it's also it would be quite demanding if you're a <laughs> singer to keep any length of bagpipe playing going and then go back to singing that would take a lot out of your wind yeah so definitely one of the funny things about it is that song's been covered by jack black in the school of rock by motorhead the dropkick murphys and here's one for you pat Boone. No kidding. Yes. Pat Boone actually put out a cover record that was all like rock and roll and heavy metal tunes. Amazing. If you guys don't know who Pat Boone is, he's like the (laughs) most wholesome family music. Yeah. You may not want to go check him out. (laughs) Yeah. Vanilla type singer. And he actually did a cover of this song, which is crazy. I do have in my notes that I did find one other song that has bagpipes not in the forefront but it and i don't know it might be pipes it might be a synthesizer Mm -hmm. because it's peter gabriel okay but on uh on the track come talk to me on the live version of secret world there's a faint in the background bagpipe sound so what i remember did i I mow your lawn on that yeah you you covered all my points which is just fine because it's a great song i would just add that like the song is so iconic and it just proves that any instrument can rock i mean you can make that bagpipe solo is great and the video they have a a couple bagpipers playing it which i assume is what they did whenever they performed it in that context in a video context or because it is a live performance clearly going on in the yeah, video yeah 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 but uh, but yeah i know also just what you said they they only perform even though it's one of their most popular songs they rarely if ever performed it live and uh, just too demanding too complicated and uh, never since bon scott died so yeah, I have nothing to add. I guess I'll just take it to my number my number five, and then when take, I get to my yeah. number two, we'll just figure we'll it just, out. We'll, we'll figure we'll it out when we it. get there. Well, I could take one of my honorable mentions and slip it in. No, I won't do that. that <laughs> you can if you want. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave that open for you. <laughs> nah, it's okay. I leave them for honorable mentions. All right, you ready for my number five? Ready for your number five. Okay. Uh, my number five is Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, which has that famous line played by the... 
theremin. The theremin, which is one of the first instruments that was developed basically with electric power. It is meant to be played by the human hands. They never touch the theremin. It's meant to simulate the human voice. It was intended as a classical instrument. It has been used in several rock recordings, one of which will be in my honorable mention, so I can tell you're about to say it. But yeah, so when you know that, you know, you hear that line, which I'm a little croaky to sing, but the... In the beach, in the yeah. in, in good vibrations, that's played by a theremin, um, which responds to the magnetic field, the electric electric fields of the human hand. Which I'll demonstrate now because you guessed it, we have a theremin at Rocky. So let's see if our mics can pick this up. Okay. And if you don't know what a theremin looks like, it looks like a, the one that we have here at Rocky. This one looks like a small transistor radio with yeah. the big aerial sticking out of it. A proper one looks like a big transistor radio with the big aerial. <laughs> So here, I'll play a little theremin for you. As you can see... Or hear. As, as you can hear, I'm not quite as good at the theremin as whoever played it on the uh, Beach Boys track. I actually don't know who played it. But, I don't either. Uh, you know, there are other places you can hear a theremin are, for example, on the Star Trek theme. That's a famous example of a theremin. Yeah. The original Star Trek theme. And tons of 1950s uh, horror monster movies. True. They all, true. Have, they all have the theremin in them. But lots of early 20th century orchestral music, which was when it was originally developed. So, good vibrations, the theremin. I can't think... There are Probably lots of theremins popping up in rock and roll here and there, but nothing as important to the song as that one, nothing as beautifully played, because they really nailed the nailed yeah. pitches. Yeah, Good Vibrations is probably the number one uh, example of a theremin in a rock and roll song. And thus, it's my number five. All right, my number four is the electric drill used on an electric guitar. Now, my my example is Pound Cake by Van Halen off of For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge in 1991. Don't spell Yeah, it's just, don't, <laughs> don't spell that out. So here in, in Eddie's own words, because evidently for a while he had a website where you could send him a question and he would write an answer to it. Wow. Yeah, I found this on that old website. It says, the drill on Pound Cake was a complete fluke creative accident. We were playing, and I always like to play in the control room because I hate wearing headphones. Ken Dean, who was my maintenance tech for my studio at the time, happened to be replacing a piece of outboard gear behind me while we were playing. He left the drill laying in front of me as he was going to grab a replacement piece of gear. As I'm sure you know, a guitar pickup is very similar to a microphone. I happened to grab the drill, and by sheer luck, it was in the same key as the song. So I asked Alex, his brother Alex, to start Pound Cake again from the beginning, and I used the drill over the pickup and scraped it on the strings for the intro. I also used it for a second or two during the song's solo. It's just one of those funny, unplanned things that happen every so often. Since it was on the record, I ended up using the same drill every time we played the song live. So not only awesome. did he not only did he use the drill, he painted it to look like his guitar. I've seen that on the video. Yeah. That's not the only use of a drill in a rock song. There was a band called Mr. Big. Oh sure. Back in the 90s if you remember them, that had a song called Daddy Brother Lover Little Boy. I don't even want to get into that. Nope. But the bass player and the guitarist both used a drill and it had uh, something on the end of it it wasn't like eddie's that just had the round bit 
on the end where he was getting it close to the strings. Yeah. They had some sort of attachment that actually strums the strings. So if you go look up the video on YouTube, you'll see that these guys are getting some ridiculous rate of plucking the strings by using these drills. It's crazy. There's a bunch of YouTube videos like that. Just this morning, I saw one with a guy who attached picks to a fishing reel, and it was spinning around the fishing reel. That's crazy. I've seen him with electric fans. I've seen him with all kinds of things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's the electric drill. All right, what's cool. your number four? Was your top five then sorted by instrument or or thing that made the sound? Because mine was done by song. I didn't think of it doing it your way. I did. Uh, well, I did mine by the actual instrument or non-instrument or whatever it is that they used. And I tried to do it in a way that was, how rare was it? Got it. Got so. it. All right. Well, we don't line up exactly right, but you know, it'll be seamless, right? It'll, it's just organic. It's a process, man. Got to respect the process. <laughs> respect okay. the process. <laughs> All right. Well, my number, my number four is not an especially weird sound or an especially weird thing, but it is, as far as I know, the only example of this being used. And it's on Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra. Okay. Everybody knows Mr. Blue Sky. And you might notice that at the end of each verse or each section of the verse, there are four clangs. Clang, 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 clang. Yeah. And that was made in the studio by somebody banging in a, a fire extinguisher with a wrench. Oh, and wow. As far as I know, there is no other example of a fire extinguisher being banged with a wrench on any other rock recording. That's unique. Yeah. It's not, a, I mean, they could have easily done it with a cymbal. I don't know why they did it with a fire extinguisher. A cymbal or a bell? I always thought that was a bell. Everyone thinks it's a bell because it sounds like a bell. I don't know why they didn't just use a bell. Maybe they didn't have one. Maybe they had a fire extinguisher and a wrench. Could have been one of those happy accidents. I have no idea. That's really cool. Yeah. So my number three is from Van Halen's first album on Running With The Devil. It's the first song you hear on the record. And they're car horns. They actually took the car horns out of a couple of their cars and they mounted them in a box that was powered by two car batteries and they used a foot switch. Now the sound that it makes and it trails off was done by the producer Ted Templeman slowing the tape down on the final recording, which makes the the sound at the start of the song. As far as I know, that's the only use of car horns in rock and roll, and it's it's a signature start to that song and that entire album. I bet we could find other car horns, but not used to make a tone the way that is done. Right? Just yeah, as a sound effect, uh, as a sound effect, right. but not not as less interesting. Yeah, not as a tone exactly. as the not as an instrument as an instrument. Right. Yeah. Ready for my number three? Go for your number three. Okay, my number three is a vibra slap. And I'm happen to be holding a vibraslap in my hand. See if you recognize this sound. And my favorite example of the vibraslap, other than pretty much every song by Cake, all is, the Cake songs, is "Crazy Train" by Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, that's such a great song. Is that on your list too? It's nope. on my honorable mentions. Oh, it's on your honorable mentions. Okay, so yeah, the vi- vibraslap is definitely honorable mention because a lot of people use it. Yeah, I know, but it's such a great sound. And uh, on the intro of Crazy Train, if you don't have a vibraslap, you aren't playing the intro right. Just go back and listen to it. The cool thing, uh, a cool thing about a vibraslap is the original instrument was a donkey jaw with loose teeth. Oh, wow. I've never heard one played or seen it played. I don't know why the teeth wouldn't just fall out. Maybe they're kept in somehow artificially. Maybe. But 
it's a it's a very old style of an instrument dating back to I don't know how long exactly, but going you know going back to donkey places, jaw, donkey jaws go way back. I understand that, but I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure how long ago the instrument was developed as an instrument. But the modern vibra slap, which looks kind of like what would you call that a bent up coat hanger with some pieces of wood on it? Yeah, yeah. Um, the modern vibra slap is simply a way to reproduce the original sound without going out and finding a donkey jaw. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the I, I've always enjoyed the vibra slap being great sound, an accent, and that's part of the reason why I like cake so much is because they they really use that. They don't overuse it. They use it in a lot of songs, oh, but they don't overuse it. Just yeah. Got a shout out to Mr. Mark Heim, who is the person who introduced me to the vibra slap. Oh yeah, yeah. and he, loves to use it to this day. Yes, he does. Yeah. All right, my number two is spoons. And I don't know if anybody has ever used spoons in a song other than Soundgarden on the song Spoon Man. There's an acoustic version of Spoon Man that was in the movie Singles, and I don't think it's on the soundtrack. I think it's just in the film. But they did the electric version on Super Unknown in 1994. The song's inspiration was a guy in Santa Cruz, California, and later in Seattle. It was a guy named Artist the Spoon Man. He was a street performer. And the final version of this song features Artist the Spoon Man playing his spoons as part of the song's bridge. Also in the song, Matt Cameron, the drummer for Soundgarden, plays pots and pans that kind of accent some of the stuff. But in the middle of the song, and I think it's about the uh, the 233 mark is where the artist, the Spoon Man, comes in. And if you look it up on YouTube, on the video, you can see in some short bursts how he plays the spoons. The start at 233 is where you hear the spoons being played with only the drums as the accompaniment. And then I think the bass comes in, and then there's still some more spoon playing that goes on. And it's amazing what this guy can do. This The, the speed of the percussiveness of the spoons is uh, just crazy. Cool. Yeah, well, and I think you probably find spoons on a lot of early recordings, I'm guessing, folk and blues recordings, because people definitely play them as, yeah. a, as a folk instrument. All right. Uh, my number two was It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll, which we've already covered. So why don't I just go straight to my number one? Go to your number one. And then you'll bookend li- the list with your number one, which, because of your shirt, I'm guessing is the same artist as my number one, which, of course, is the Beatles. Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. We'll have to see if it's... I'm so curious now. Okay. We'll have to see if it's the, a similar... Uh, if, it's a, if it's the same instrument. But uh, my number one example of a weird instrument on a recording is the song Long, Long, Long from the White Album by the Beatles. And this is a George Harrison composition, which is dreamy and trance-like and shows his um, the Eastern music influences that that were present very much in a lot of Beatles recordings, but particularly in George Harrison compositions. Right. And there are photos from the session when the guys recorded the song, and you'll see, if you go look online, you'll see they're all having a good time and they're drinking wine. And they have a bottle of Blue Nun wine, which is really cheap plonk, as yeah. you know. And I don't know why these guys couldn't get better wine, but hey, no judgment. Anyway, somebody <laughs> left the well, half... They, they, they weren't in Paris. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody left the, the empty or half-empty <laughs> wine bottle on a speaker cabinet, and somebody, probably, I think it must have been John Lennon, was playing, um, I, th- I believe, a Mellotron through the speaker cabinet, and when he played a certain frequency the bottle started to rattle and it made this drone-like sound which was perfect for 
the song. It, it fit the it fit the the sort of the mysticism and the trance like nature of the song perfectly. So the Beatles, being the Beatles and having absolutely no creative filter, they would do anything if they thought it sounded good, which is what made them such geniuses. They mic'd it up, and if you listen to the song "Long, Long, Long," as the intro begins, you hear this weird rattling drone, and they all jam to it for about a minute, and that is the sound of the Blue Nun bottle rattling on top of the speaker cabinet. So the speak is it a regular speaker cabinet? I think it's a Leslie. Is it I a Leslie? It's a rotating Leslie speaker cabinet, which would explain why that or yeah. the resonance of the, the frequency of the note would explain why the bottle started to shake all at that it. particular at that particular note. Yeah, nobody else is going to have a Blue Nun bottle on their record other than the Beatles. Or if anybody else does, it's because they were like, well, the Beatles could do it, so so can I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just remember, kids, the Beatles did everything first. <laughs> well, maybe not hip-hop. Not, every, not hip-hop. Well, not everything. <laughs> they did a lot of stuff first, but not everything. So what's your number one? So my number one, my shirt's not going to give it away because my shirt's for later in the oh. episode. So I'm 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 holding this card oh. close to the vest. My number one is a bull roarer. I know what a bull roarer is. I don't know what song you might be referring. The to. song, oddly enough, is Bull Roarer by Midnight Oil. That Midnight Oil to, kids. If you, if you don't, yeah, <laughs> dead giveaway. If uh, if you don't know who Midnight Oil is, they're an Australian band. They're very politically active. So much so that their lead singer, Peter Garrett, ended up as a member of the House of Representatives in Australia for a good number of years. But the bull roar is an ancient ritual musical instrument and a device that it's used for communicating over great distances. It's an aboriginal instrument. It consists of a piece of wood attached to a string, which is swung in a large circle, and it produces a roaring vibrato sound. So at the start of this song, you'll hear the low roar. It's a roar type instrument. This is the only song that I know of that uses that. I don't know how they got it recorded. You couldn't do it in a small studio like this. (laughs) Yeah, a big microphone or doing it outside or something like that. So this song is on Diesel and Dust, which came out in 1987. It's an album that speaks to the need for recognition by white Australia of past injustices involving the indigenous Aboriginal nation and the need for reconciliation. The sound of it, though, it reminds me of something like a prop plane engine. It's really Uh, cool. Yeah. And it's just such a, a great intro to that song. Part of the rhythm of the song isn't isn't the bull roar, but it's it sounds like maybe it's a smaller bull roar. I don't know, but there's a wish 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 sound in that song that is used as the rhythm almost through the entire song. So, cool. All right. What are your honorable mentions? Because I've okay. got a few. I got a few too. And by the way, I-, I was thinking just when you were talking about Midnight Oil, I-, I can't think of a specific example, but they must have a song with didgeridoo on it too, which would be a nice uh, honorable mention if I could think of one. I'm, I bet they do. I, I just don't. Do. I don't know. Yeah. I'd have to go listen back through the album again, or some of their albums again, and see if they have one. So I'll go to my honorable mentions. Uh, the first one's another Beatles tune. Okay. Um, if you listen to the song Blackbird. Most yeah. people can hear that in their head, and they, they you ask them what's on it, and they immediately say, well, it's just Paul McCartney playing an acoustic guitar and singing. But if you listen carefully, there is a, a beat, basically a click track, through the entire song. And once you hear it, you can never unhear it. I never noticed it until I did. And then when I noticed it, I can't unnotice it. <laughs> and um, that happens to be, do you have any idea? 
No. What is it? Well, it sounds exactly like a metronome. What it is, is it's Paul's foot. He's tapping his ah. foot. And I think I've got this right. The engineer said, Paul, we can hear you tapping your foot. And Paul, instead of saying, okay, I won't tap my foot, he said, okay, put a mic on it. Yeah. And, and once again, no filter creatively. Amazing. Um, another one I really like, and I, I can't verify that this is actually what was used in the recorded track, but uh, one of my favorite bands is Wolfpeck. And yeah. they do really creative things, and they have a song called Birds of a Feather. Again, can't verify it that this is how they recorded it, but on the video, the, again, metronomic percussive track that goes throughout is being played by Jack Stratton on a pancake griddle with a spatula actually hitting pancakes. <laughs> so... I don't know if they I don't know if that's how they did it or if that's just what they decided to do in the video but it's pretty awesome. Here's just a little trivia twist. Everyone knows Seven Nation Army, everyone knows the famous bass line, but most people don't know it's not being played by a bass. It's being played by Jack White on a guitar with a Digitech yeah. whammy pedal, an octave or two octaves down. He did not do that on a bass. One last one is uh no, two last ones, sorry. I'm a big fan of the kazoo. <laughs> I feel it is a highly overlooked and underutilized instrument. It is amazing. Yeah. Almost anybody can play it. Anybody can play it. And uh, the the best example of a kazoo on a rock record is Crosstown Traffic by Jimi Hendrix, right. where he doubles his guitar riff on the kazoo, or somebody doubles it. And finally, I just got to shout it out, because it's Led Zeppelin. I mentioned the theremin for good vibrations, but uh, another famous use of the theremin is the bridge of Whole Lot of Love, yeah. uh, where I believe Jimmy Page actually did it with his guitar in the theremin. I don't think it was a separate theremin. I think he was holding his guitar up to it. I'm not quite 100% Maybe. sure about that. Yeah. But in any case, it's not as good as good vibrations because the theremin's just making noise like I made earlier. It's not really making tones. Right. But it is cool. Yeah. That's what I got for honorable mentions. All right. So my list of honorable mentions, and I'm going to put this in here even though it's a sound effect, is the canon that was in For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. Judge's Ruling? Judge's Ruling? I'll allow it. You'll allow it. All right. (laughs) So that song, oddly enough, was recorded in Paris, and the band was inspired to use the canon because they were doing their first cuts of recording the song the same day as Prince Charles and Princess Diana's wedding. Wow. And they had it on the, somebody had the wedding on in the TV in the next room, as Angus says. He said, we were playing that part of the song when the cannons were going off, and we stopped for a second and went, hmm, <laughs> that actually sounds pretty good. So they added in That's the cool. cannon fire, and you can hear that at about the 335 mark of that song. I went with the vibra slap. Definitely on the, the vibra slap. You know, the only reason I didn't put it on my list is because it's so ubiquitous. Crazy Train, Ozzy Osbourne, pick a song by Cake. Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. Yeah, it's another good one. Forgot Closer to the Heart by Rush. Really? It's in gotta there. Go listen there. You gotta go listen to that again. And like you said on the other song, once you hear it, you'll never unhear, never unhear it. it. Orange Crush by REM, Feeling All Right by Joe Cocker. And in a rap song, Nothing But a G Thing by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Definitely going back and listening to that today. The Glockenspiel, which shows up in a ton of songs. But I think the most pronounced version is Steppin' Out by Joe Jackson. It's a good one. Uh, great song. That's in I Will Follow by U2, Happy Christmas by John Lennon, Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix, No Surprises by Radiohead, and in Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, really? his guitar line is doubled on the glockenspiel. And one of our dedicated listeners, my buddy Mark in Houston, plays in an 80s cover band called the Xana Dudes, which I think is just an amazing... <laughs> Name. They do a great version of Stepping Out, and Mark plays the glockenspiel part 
on his daughter's toy metal xylophone, and nice. it's amazing. Happen to have a Glockenspiel right here in the Rock U studio. Right there. Sweet! Blue thing. And by the way, uh, one more example of the glockenspiel, which might surprise people who think of it as like a little toy high-pitched instrument, is uh, on Marilyn Manson's cover of Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by the Eurythmics. It's very eerie when he oh, puts that yeah. glockenspiel in there. Another one is the, it was really ubiquitous, is the sitar. Yeah, sure. And obviously, Beatles, Norwegian Wood, Paint It Black by The Stones, Don't Come Around Here No More by Tom Petty and The Heartbreakers, Do It Again, Steely Dan, and oddly enough, Ain't Talking About Love wow, by Van Halen. Never noticed that. The guitar solo is doubled with an overdub wow. of the electric sitar that Eddie plays. Uh, another song that it's just straight out in the middle of is a song called Lebanese Blonde by Thievery Corporation. They're kind of, I don't know what you would call them. They're, they're not exactly rock and roll. They're not exactly house. They're not exactly dubstep or whatever, but I like them and they're, they're fun. And that's where you can listen to a sitar. Cool. Two others. One that's just on a liner note that I got to include just because it's ridiculously funny. On the song Ain't Gonna Cry by Brian Adams on the Reckless LP, at the end of the liner notes, there's a dumpster solo that is accredited to someone known only as and this is really unique dumpster so the end of the song is just it just kind of falls apart and uh, (laughs) it's if you if you pull it up and listen to it on spotify you'll see what i mean the worst one is the use of a chainsaw and i don't know if you remember this song but i do and it's just it's like nails on a chalkboard for me (laughs) There's a song called Lumberjack by the band Jackal that came out in 1992. It's kind of like a country song, but the, really the song is just an excuse to use a chainsaw on a record. I'm not sure who greenlit it, but good Lord, it's just, it's horrid. I wouldn't even call it musical. But I had to add it because it's, it's weird. Just, it's weird. If you, if it's like the train wreck, you can't yeah. look away. So <laughs> I got one more, which okay. I, which I actually, if I had seen it or heard of it before, I already made my list. Before I'd made my list, I might have included it in my top five. Which is, uh, I don't know if this is the original recording, but I recently stumbled across a live recording of the Violent Femmes. Okay, and the drummer who always played standing up is playing yep. the entire show with brushes on a Weber grill. Weber Grill. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's cool. Check it out. Well, it happened again, didn't it? You're on school break for Tucson, but your parents don't want to go away because they're too busy or there's visitors or they got work to do or whatever it is. Well, don't sit around at home watching TikTok on your couch. Come to Rock You and rock with us. Both weeks of the Tucson break, we'll be having bands for ages 8 to 16. You can rock out, learn new songs. At the end of each week, we make videos of the songs you've learned, and you won't be bored all day. Go to www.rock-u.fr to learn more. Well, all right, we're back with our next segment of the podcast today, and every once in a while we like to bring you something from the legal desk of Seth Hinckley Esquire, who is one of the most esteemed legal brains in the legal community of legal brains. So (laughs) Seth's going to talk to us today. He's going to teach us about whether or tell us about whether it's possible to be sued for a breakup song. Okay, Matt, what's your favorite breakup song? You need one or two. 
two. Two. Sure. All right. Well, because you said two, so yeah. All right. Well, I, I love, I love. Um, you ought to know by Alanis Morissette, which we discussed, I believe, on our collaborations episode yeah. last year. It's just man, does she knock it out of the park? Uh, and I love All Too Well by Taylor Swift, which we talked about, I believe, on our Long Songs episode. She's got a lot of breakup songs. She's got but tons. That's, a good one. that's my favorite one. I just I love both of those songs for how effectively they communicate the emotion behind the breakup. One of my favorites is Carly Simon's You're So Vain. It's a good one. And allegedly, that's about three different three guys. Three different guys, yeah. Supposedly, there was an interview with her not too long ago where she said the second verse is about Warren Beatty, but she also said that he thinks the entire song is about him. Because so, he's so vain. Because he is so vain. <laughs> She's uh, revealed clues. She's given letters and other clues over the years. Yeah. There's plenty out there on the internet for you conspiracy theorists if you want to see who it might be about. If you want to do that. The legal question is, can you get sued for writing and recording a breakup song? I'm going to give you the lawyer answer first. Theoretically, yes. Anybody with a few hundred bucks can file a lawsuit in the U.S. That's just the way that works. You know, if you make something up about a person and you publish it, you could be looking down the barrel of a defamation lawsuit or at least a nasty letter from another lawyer. What is defamation? That's what we got to go through and figure out today. Basically, I'll, I'll get into the details here in a second, but basically it's when you say something that is provably false about someone that harms them in some way. In the old days in Texas, there used to be a few things that you could say about somebody that was defamation per se, which means it's just defamation by itself. Even if, if you, it's true. No, no. Ah, okay. It's sorry, just sorry, it's yeah. just it, it ha- the the thing proven? has to be false. Okay. It has to be false. So if Matt sang a song about me like this one, here we go. <clears throat> I'm breaking up with Seth because he's a perverted, illiterate, communist, bankrupt dude, and I hate that guy. So if Matt, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so if Matt published that song under the old law, if he said uh, because there were four things in Texas law that were automatically defamation, the law said that if if you said that someone was bankrupt, illiterate, homosexual, this tells you how old this thing was, and communist. Any of those four things would get you straight to, yeah, you committed defamation. (laughs) Now, there is still such a thing in Texas law as defamation per se, but it's not that cut and dried. Courts do a detailed analysis of what a statement is and how it affects the person that it's said about. Unambiguously saying that somebody committed a crime if they didn't, can fall under this analysis. Now, it's it's a very fact-based analysis, and you can't just automatically say, oh, you said that I stole a car when I didn't. That actually has to be looked at and said, well, did that actually damage me in some way? The basic common law elements, and these are this is just a general overview of what you would find in the in the u.s to prove defamation a plaintiff has to show and that would be in our situation the person who the song is about would have to show that one there's a false statement that is purported to be fact two it got public uh, the there was publication or communication of that false statement to a third party so if matt just sings the song to me that doesn't qualify (laughs) There's fault amounting to at least negligence, which means you knew or you should have known what you were saying was false when you said it. 
and that there's damage or harm to the reputation of the person or the entity, like corporation or LLC or whatever, that is the subject of the statement. Every state, and I'm sure that France and multiple other countries have defamation laws on the books, and they all have their own idiosyncrasies. But those are the basic things that are usually required. Now, you don't have to specifically say the person's name, because if it's easy to figure out, then you could be liable. Now, the Carly Simon thing, since it's been so tough to figure out, she might not be able to be held liable for defamation by implication. But the other thing is, she doesn't really say anything factual that could be harmful. You're so vain. That's her opinion. But if there's no real way to implicate the person that you're writing about, then it'd be extremely hard for them to prove that, one, you made a false statement actually about them, and two, that it actually harmed them in some way. So unless you're bound by a contract like a non-disclosure agreement or something like that, and you aren't lying about what happened, then you're not going to be liable. If you're just stating your opinion, that's not defamation. Even if it's hyperbole, you're the worst person in the world. That's just your opinion. So that's not that's not defamation. And if you're saying things that are actually true, they actually happened, that's not defamation either. So truth in a defamation case is an absolute unassailable defense. So if you're telling the truth, you're in the clear. So the lesson is, kids, just like mom always said, always tell the truth. So when you're writing your breakup song, just don't lie about it. <laughs> All right. I'll play us out. So Okay. With a little code I just invented. Seth can't read and he's got no money. His politics are way too left wing for me, honey. There's nothing that guy wouldn't do. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I can prove it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, there is a Spotify playlist that you can find in the show notes that has them all. All right, Rockers, we're back. We're going to do our one-minute matchup. I'm ready. The segment that we love so much. Training all summer. Exactly. Arguing at the mirror. Trying to talk like a cattle auctioneer. Doing tongue push-up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the question we've got is, do you shell out good money to see a band that's past their prime? Are you going to go first? I don't mind. Okay. We'll have the stopwatch, and if you're ready, your minute starts now. Okay, the key words here, Seth, are past their prime. Okay. Uh, I will say there's one good reason to see a band that's past its prime, and that's to say that you saw them. When I was a little kid, my mom dragged me to concerts by Andres Segovia and Benny Goodman. They were probably both in their 90s at the time, and I was like, Mom, why do I have to get a stupid concert? But now I can say, I saw Andres Segovia play live. I saw Benny Goodman play live. That's the good reason. But I think there's a lot more reasons to go the other way. If they're past their prime, you are going to be spending a lot of money for an experience that's not going to be all that satisfying. So let's just pick a random example, say, the Rolling Stones. And I'm guessing that a Rolling Stones concert costs you well over 250 euros to get a good ticket. Well, for 250 euros, you can go to see... 10 or 12 or 20 shows by bands you may not have heard of in intimate venues where you can have a much more satisfying experience, even if just two or three of them are as good as an experience, it's, it's, I'd much rather spend that money seeing some unknown bands. You and I went to a show last week where the tickets were 18 bucks. Great show. 
dude, that was right in. Just you, I, you went over like maybe maybe a half a second. I didn't even have to. <laughs> <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Three, two, one. All right. After seeing a few shows this summer, I have to say in almost every instance, yes. They may have lost a step. The singer may not be able to hit the high notes anymore. They may have dropped a few BPM on how they play the song. But that doesn't mean that they don't put on a good show. My wife and I actually went to see the Stones on their 60th Hmm. anniversary tour. And while Mick, Keith, and Ronnie took breaks during the show, it, it was amazing and they kept it all going great. Our family also went to the Taylor Hawkins tribute show. We got to see the James Gang for three songs. They totally rock. Roger Taylor and Brian May from Queen and Sir Paul McCartney doing an amazing version of Helter Skelter backed up by the Foo Fighters. I think that I got every penny's worth of my money seeing those shows and seeing the performances and, again, being able to say that I saw those guys live. And my daughter got to see the, all the folks at the Taylor Hawkins show. You made it right on a minute. Right That's on good. a minute. Yeah. I, I've only got one exception yeah. to, to my wholehearted yes. And it's because it just kind of made me sad. I was going to go buy tickets to the Genesis show mm-hmm. that was coming through Paris this past summer. And I saw the video that somebody posted on YouTube of a prior show. And Phil Collins, his health, God bless the man, he just was in such poor shape that it just hurt my heart to see him like that out front. I'm glad that he did the show. I'm glad people got to see Genesis one more time. But just a personal thing, it just was being a drummer, being a Genesis fan, being a Phil Collins fan. It hurt my heart a little bit to see him in that situation. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. In a way, the way you phrased the question almost, to me, made it a tautology because, to me, the way you would define whether a band has passed its prime is if you left the concert and ha- didn't weren't satisfied with the experience. So, uh, I mean, oh, almost well, by definition. Yeah, the yeah. definition. Yeah, my <laughs> definition was, okay, they may have lost a step. Yeah. They, they may, you know. All right, that's fair enough. I guess yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair that's, maybe, maybe we didn't yeah. have the same definition, well, which it's, is why it's, we came down on the It's same. all good. For me, it's, yeah. it's because you, you brought in the money, and I would say, again, you know, 1780 for one ticket to see We Were Promised Jetpacks, and then which nine was a other great show. and nine other shows versus 179 euros to see some big act that you know is, has tons of YouTube videos and concert DVDs. I'll go to the, see the ten the ten shows in the small venue any day. I can see where you're coming from on that. Yeah. I can. So, was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? <laughs> Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. This episode of Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for music production in Paris. Everything from the creative side to the technical side to the business side. You can check out what they do at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And, of course, you'll hear a lot of Rock U artists on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast, is a production of Rock U. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinckley. 
And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock U is a non-profit association Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time.